When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And last time on Stuff Mom Never Told You, we talked about the masculine gendering of the chef profession. Mm -hmm. And this time we're going to talk about celebrity chefs Mm -hmm. and TV cooks because gender plays a different sort of role, but also kind of the same role, but we see lots of women on our TVs cooking food for us, Yeah, and we're not going to be able to mention every single woman cooking food on television as much as we would like to. Oh, my notes are just literally a list. (laughs) It's just a list of names. Shoot, I didn't prepare anything else. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. But of course, we will talk about the amazing, influential Julia Child and some women chefs today. But first, Caroline, I must ask you, do you have a favorite man or woman celebrity chef? I don't, actually. I have never been that into watching TV cooking and not not because I'm a jerk. But I don't, I don't know about that, Caroline. <laughs> but but because I'm like, I, I want to, to eat it. I I don't want to watch it. I want to eat it. And um, so then I, I can I can get a little bored watching some of the cooking shows, specifically if they're the ones where they're literally like on a TV set standing behind the counter in front of an audience. I'm like, ugh, I don't know. This is kind of like a talk show, but with food. But it's not. But but the food isn't talking. I wish the food were talking. Yeah, that could make it more fun. That could also indicate that I'm on drugs. I don't know. Or the cook is on drugs and you're just watching <laughs> sober. Uh, yeah, I similarly am not as drawn to instructional cooking shows, although, fun fact, slash weird fact, slash sign that I was a homeschooler fact, <laughs> I loved cooking when I was a kid. I still really enjoy cooking. And anytime I would cook, especially if I was by myself, I would speak out loud as though I were on a cooking show. And there are some home movies of me hosting my own cooking show which my parents um, will probably blackmail me with at, <laughs> at some point. That's amazing. So what did you cook? Uh, a lot of cookies. I was, I was a bit of a baker, you know, <laughs> sugar cookies. And actually, these things called cowboy cookies mm. were my specialty. Cowboy cookies are just like chocolate oatmeal cookies with pecans in them. Oh, yeah, they're well, very you good. You haven't made those for me. Well, you know, I've been busy shooting my show and showing it to no one. Um, 
But, uh, but I also now have a kind of guilty pleasure for cooking competition shows. I do. Yeah, I do. That's not to say just because I've never been super drawn to cooking shows doesn't mean I haven't watched them. I do really like shows like Top Chef and Chopped. I also really like if we're going to just go down this road. Let's go down this road. I really love Kitchen Nightmares, which is not a cooking show, but it is a celebrity chef show. Gordon Ramsay is... um terrifying. He loves to yell at people. But the thing is, you can tell he's got a heart. You can tell he knows what he's doing. He's a smart guy. He just gets real red in the face. So what does he do in Kitchen Nightmares? So, okay, yeah, basically uh, a restaurant is in trouble. Oh, no. They're not running the business right. Oh, no. The food is awful. The customers are unhappy. What are we going to do? And so Gordon Ramsay comes in and he's got all the answers, all the solutions. He's a solutions guy, Kristen. And uh, he comes in and he's like, all right, your cooking is awful. Your restaurant is awful. You're awful. And he's yelling and he's like, we're going to fix it. And so he's like, here's how we're going to fix it. And then typically what happens, I'm not sure why these people email him or call him or whatever, because then what happens is the people are like, but I don't want to do anything. And he's like, well, you're the worst. And sometimes then he leaves. But a lot of times then he fixes it. There's a restaurant here in Atlanta that I won't name because I'm not mean, but they were on Kitchen Nightmares and they are no longer open. So he couldn't save the kitchen then? No, I think they they reopened after uh, his show was there, but not for much longer. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I um, before I started watching his shows, I didn't think I was a fan of Gordon Ramsay. I was like, how? what, what a rude man just going around <laughs> making a career yelling at people. But I am now a closet fan of MasterChef. My fiance and I watch it and <laughs> there's nothing more. I mostly do it for the entertainment of watching my fiance pick his favorites <laughs> and get very opinionated about home chefs. Um, and you see more of the softer mentoring side of Gordon Ramsay in, in Master Chef. Um, Top Chef, my fiance doesn't like so Why? much. He think it, he, I, it's because he thinks it's overproduced and he isn't a fan of Padma. Which interesting, I know. Which I give him a little side eye about. I was like, "Are you? She? She? Yeah, yeah. You just dismissing her because you think she's just a pretty face? I mean, she's beautiful. She talks about cooking and eating all the time. A lot of people do dismiss her as just being just being a model or a former model, just being Salman Rushdie's ex wife. Wife, yeah. And then you've got Tom Colicchio, who's the other person on Top Chef running the show. Mm-hmm. But. Since this is stuff Mom never told you, we should mention, speaking of Top Chef, for a while there was a lot of grumbling about how few female Top Chef winners there were. And I don't have the count, but even now I think there's still only a handful of women who have won it. But you know what's interesting about shows like Top Chef is that they always focus, well, mostly focus on the classic cooking, which is, you know, savory savory meats and things. Um, and the, it seems like when there's a baking challenge, everybody, including some of the women, are like, ugh, baking. That's like a super hard like thing for women to do. Like, that's not cooking. And so, yeah, it's it, all of those shows do tend to focus on more of the classic chefery rather than the baking. Although there are, of course, baking competition shows, too. Well, this year also, or this season on MasterChef, 
there's a new judge, Christina Tosi, who runs Momofuku Milk Bar. So there have been a lot more baking challenges. And I was really mm-hmm. excited to see a woman judge on MasterChef and kind of see her get her bearings and become judgier in the best sense of the word. Yeah. Because at first I was a little nervous that it was going to be fluffy, fluffy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, she's only going to talk about the cakes. But no, she was great. She can can talk about the cakes with me if she wants. I'm fine with just talking about the cakes. And what cakes Christina Tosi can make. I love cake. But Caroline, we could seriously sit here and just talk about our celebrity (laughs) chef habits for 30 more minutes. But we have some history. Okay, let's do it. We got a hit. Because there have always been celebrity chefs of sorts. This is something that Yale professor Paul Friedman has studied and discussed. But it was mostly just way, way, way back in the day. Dudes cooking for other important dudes. A lot of it's... uh, very reminiscent of our last podcast on chefs being a traditionally and historically male profession. Yeah. In ancient Greece, we do get one celebrity chef by name, Mitticus, who was mentioned by Plato and other important folks. But there's only one surviving recipe of his. And it's a Christian. This is a recipe I can follow. Uh, it's how to make ribbon fish. And uh, it's basically just instructions to cook it with cheese and oil. Yeah, that's it. Have at it! Exclamation point. But Friedman goes on to talk about how in 14th century France, we get the first celebrity chef we really know anything about. Because, you know, Mitticus only has this little ribbon fish recipe. But we have this guy whose name, Caroline, I'm going to let you pronounce because we all know I'm not great with French pronunciations. Uh, his name, please don't write me letters, is Guillaume Tyrell, uh, a.k.a. Tyvon. Uh, and he's such a big deal, or he was such a big deal because he did. Uh, he was such a big deal that he ended up uh, becoming ennobled. And he got his name on a medieval recipe collection, which is adorable. And the current modern fancy pants Parisian restaurant, Taiwan, is named after him. And it's going to be a long, long, long time post Taiwan that we get celebrity women chefs, much, uh, much less women chefs in general, because of course, women tend to do the cooking yeah. at home, even today. Um, I believe you have a, a stat in front of you about how, as egalitarian as we like to think our society is, women still do a majority of the cooking off screen. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that we touched on in that episode we did a while back now, which I find myself referencing a lot still, which is the egalitarian household episode we did, um, that women still do at least five hours, usually five hours plus of food prep a week versus men's two hours. And that's coming from the 2012 American Time Use Survey. So despite the fact that women do more of the cooking and more of the food prep at home, we're still not giving them the same type of respect as chefs on the one hand, but also respect in terms of like airtime on TV and being celebrity chefs. Yeah, I mean, and it's not so surprising that women even today, do a majority of the cooking in the home because homemaking and cooking have been ingrained in our American female culture. These are traits that even government propaganda has targeted at us. And the first so-called celebrity female cooks, not chefs, were invented partially to sell products, 
but also to teach women proper homemaking and proper cooking, the right way to take care of her family, which involved cooking. So in 1924, we have the debut of the fictional Betty Crocker, who was a mascot created by the Washburn Flower Company, who goes on the radio to answer home cook's letters about baking quandaries. Yeah, so she was voiced by various uh, actresses mm-hmm. on the radio. I love that. And I, I don't even, I don't know if I knew that Betty Crocker wasn't real. I mean, I, I think I assumed she wasn't. Is this your Santa Claus moment? <laughs> <laughs> Although the the Betty Crocker reminds me of how on many Sundays I will listen to Lynn Rosetta Casper's Splendid Kitchen on uh, NPR. Don't you love it? I completely forgot about that, Kristen. It's the best. I don't I don't seek it out, but when I catch it, I love it because the thing is that woman is so I want to use a curse word. She is so freaking like amazing, warm, funny. Totally unruffled. You can be like, uh, hello, ma'am. I, I, I only have strips of printer paper and some mustard and, and some ribbon fish. And, yeah. And she's like, oh, don't even worry about it. I've got you covered. And she's so soothing. Oh, God. If I anyone knows LRC, please give her some shout outs from CNC. Yeah. Um, but then a couple years after Betty Crocker makes her radio debut in 1926, I got a kick out of this. I hadn't heard of it before. The U.S. Department of Agriculture cooks up, (laughs) see what I did there, Aunt Sammy. And who is Aunt Sammy, listeners? Uncle Sam's wife. Who knew he was married? Not I. I know. Why why don't we ever see Aunt Sammy with Uncle Sam? Uncle Sam, is he running around on Aunt Sammy? Um, But Aunt Sammy was busy on the radio dispensing tips to American homemakers, courtesy Mm -hmm. of the U.S. government. Interesting. So, I mean, our, our first two female celebrity cooks, in quotes, were fake. And it's really not until the TV age do we get our breakout star, Julia Child. Yeah, and that kitchen that I worked in in northern Michigan during the summers that I referenced in our episode on waitressing, uh, the chef in the kitchen was also a very tall lady uh, who worshipped the ground that Julia Child walked on. So even from being like 14 years old, maybe 14-year-olds don't really know who Julia Child was, but I was very aware because this woman that I worked with was obsessed. Do you think it was partially because she was a fellow tall lady? I wouldn't doubt it. Well, one thing I really love about Julia Child is is not only her beloved and iconic television career, but how she was a woman who found her passion and professional success a little bit later in life. Yeah. Just like generally speaking, this is not relevant to TV cooking at all, really. Um, It's so comforting in today's environment where everything career wise feels very high pressure of if you haven't hit big success by 30, then all of your time is wasted and it's downhill from there. But it was something that Julia really kind of grappled with for a while. Uh, She grew up in moderate wealth, and she attended Smith College. 
But she once wrote in her diary, I'm sadly an ordinary person with talents I do not use. I can't believe that. Can you imagine someone like Julia Child saying that? It just goes to show. You yeah. never know. You never know what's going on with people. Yeah, your path is all right. Just keep on walking. Just keep on going. You'll find your passion. Uh, and what I love is this bit of trivia about Julia is that during World War II, she gets a job at the Office of Strategic Services because at six foot two, she was too tall to join the military. Who knew? Who knew there was such a rule? Uh, and in March 1944, oh, and by the way, the Office of Strategic Services is the precursor to the CIA, not the Culinary Institute of America, but the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, in March 1944, she was dispatched to Sri Lanka, where she served as the chief of the OSS registry. And she ended up having top security clearances because she handled all of these super highly classified documents that discussed the invasion of the Malay Peninsula. And fun tangent time, because I know Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners would be remiss to not learn a little bit more about her work with the OSS. Um, before she went over to Sri Lanka, she worked with the Emergency Sea Rescue Equipment Section to develop shark repellent. Because during World War II, you know, the, the U.S. would, their naval ships would release these torpedoes, but if sharks got in the way, they would bump them and it would accidentally detonate the explosives. So shark, pink shark mist. <laughs> yes, pink shark mist. So before she was cooking up French cuisine, she was cooking up shark repellent. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I, I like going down that little mental rabbit hole of imagining like Julia in in the kitchen with a bowl like mixing up this chemical compound and being like oh we're not going to let those sharks explode and then and then maybe painting it on with like a pastry brush and but she to be fair this is all in my weird twisted brain because she hadn't discovered her passion for uh, cooking yet but I would like to watch that episode of <laughs> Julia Child in your brain Caroline um, but if we hop back to Sri Lanka that's where I believe she meets fellow OSS officer Paul Child, where she gets Julia Child, and they travel around. And the the great thing about their well, I don't know, if it's it's great, but but something that's often repeated about their romance is how it was kind of a slow burn. At first, they're both like, eh, I don't know about this other person, but we'll like keep hanging out. And their romance blossomed, and they got married in 1946. And two years later, Paul gets assigned to France where he takes Julia out to eat at the country's oldest restaurant, and she falls in love. She has the food, and she's like, this is amazing. I have to learn how to make this. And it inspires her to take classes at Le Cordon Bleu. And this is when she starts her collaboration on a cookbook with French friends Simca Beck and Louisette Bertol. And in one of her letters to Simca during this collaboration process, she writes, Really, the more I cook, the more I like to cook. To think that it has taken me 40 years to find my true passion, cat and husband accepted. And I do. I love that idea that you will find... You will find your thing. You've just got to keep at it. You just have to keep eating. You, yeah. <laughs> Yes, finally. Someone's given me permission. Uh, in 1961, finally, after a couple years of collaborating, the book Mastering the Art of French Cooking is published. And one bit in there that she writes that jumped out to me was that the most important ingredient you can bring to it is the love of cooking for its own sake. And I wanted to mention that quote in the context of us talking about 
TV and celebrity chefs, because that is a sentiment that was at such a core of her career. That is something that might not be quite as present for cooking empires today. Yeah, it's something that's constantly uh, put on women and women's brands, especially in terms of celebrity chefs and not so much for men. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's rosewater collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them, so that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Well, then in 1963, history is made with an omelet. So Julia goes on the WGBH Boston public TV show called I've Been Reading, which sounds like a show that I I would really love. Um, And she makes an omelet. And... It very much impresses the 27 people who watch the show Wait, at the time. Is that literal? Yeah. Really? Just 27 people? It was public TV. All, all right, <laughs> Julia. <laughs> and WGBH was like, you know what? We got to give this woman a show. So from 1963 to 1966, the French chef aired 199 Stations. She became a hit, and one TV critic called her television's most reliable female discovery since Lassie, which is perhaps the most backhanded compliment I can imagine. Yeah, you better believe I made a face when I read that. Like, well, are you kidding? I think that's the best kind of compliment a, a guy could give a woman, though, in the mid-60s. She's um, better than a loyal dog. Yeah. Uh, in 1965, she wins a Peabody. 1966, she snags an Emmy. I mean, I mean, the show itself is beloved by so many people, both the tastemakers and the audience. And thanks in part to her popularity, we have to mention, Joyce Chen Cooks also debuts in 1966. And Joyce Chen becomes the first non-white cook in a televised kitchen. And it was the same set, the same original set, that Julia Child used, and Joyce Chen Cooks introduced the U.S. to Chinese cooking. So already we're seeing the Julia Child effect happening. Yeah, the Julia Child effect is so important, and I'm sure the Joyce Chen effect is important, too, because for the longest time in this era, you had people just relying on, you know, cooking was just something like you had to do, just do it, just, you know, get your TV dinner, we're in the atomic age, just pop your dinner, your, your fast uh, dinner in the oven. Um, and she was really the one who's like, let's slow it down. Let's give ourselves the power and the time over what we eat and what we put in our bodies. And let's really enjoy this process. It's not just about throwing something on the table. It's about creating something amazing with fresh ingredients. 
And speaking of fresh, Caroline, in 1970, the French chef comes back in color. Ooh, I can finally see the food. She, yeah, she gets the reboot. But what was it, though, that made Julia Child such an instant icon, almost? Well, first we have to understand that French food was just very chic mm-hmm. in the U.S. at the time. America was brimming with Francophilia in the early 60s. You have Jackie Kennedy dressed in Chanel and Dior and anything French associated was just considered, you know, something that you, you must enjoy. French cooking being part of that. But more importantly, as you were talking about Caroline, her approachability told women watching that they could cook what they wanted and be proud of it and make mistakes. They didn't need to be perfect. Yeah, I love the anecdote about Julia Child going on Martha Stewart's show and whatever they were cooking, it involved a degree of precision. And of course, the quote was that Martha looked like she had worked with Euclid to create her culinary creation, whereas Julia's was tilted. And it's like, we all knew that Julia could make this perfect food item. I can't remember what it was. But she purposely made it look a little wonky so that people at home knew, hey, you don't have to be perfect. Like, cooking is something that you can do with love and passion and really enjoy it. It doesn't have to be about the whole perfectionist aspect. And also, too, thinking about, and I don't want to, I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but just the image of Julia Child on screen contrasted to a lot of the more Food Network, airbrushy kinds of stars that we see today, where you have this like very tall, not so conventionally attractive woman in all sorts of patterned blouses, <laughs> which Ooh. I guess, oh, which I guess were popular at the time. Um, but, but it wasn't like we were watching her for her personality and not so much because she was easy on the eyes. Yeah. She she was a reassuring but authoritative personality. I mean, you you really trusted that Julia knew what she was doing and you got to watch this really quirky person really enjoy the heck out of what she was doing. Well, because she was so food first. Um I was reading an account from one of the women sh- who helped collaborate with her on cookbooks talking about how she and Julia and Paul would be in their test kitchen essentially. And just the painstaking degree of learning that Julia Child would always be constantly undergoing to try to perfect and communicate these recipes and and learning was something that she was just so passionate about. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of what makes Julia Child so fascinating is that she was an early celebrity chef sort of in every sense of the word, because nowadays we're so used to hearing what celebrity chefs think about everything, not just what they're cooking in front of them, but like social and political issues, too. And Julia Child was no different. She used her platform to help destigmatize breast cancer. She herself had a mastectomy and she talked about it. It wasn't a shameful thing to be hidden away. And she also, and this could be a newsy item today, used her platform to also stump for Planned Parenthood. Not to mention when it came to the culinary industry, she used her voice to call for it becoming more accessible and sustainable for women. She especially uh, targeted the Culinary Institute of America saying you need to attract more women. You need to get more women in your kitchen. Sexism in this industry isn't necessarily okay. Although she was very like, this is just the way it's going to be, ladies. Uh, But speaking of that, 
one ripple effect of Julia Child was her mentorship. She helped groom some of the household celebrity chef names that we know today. And we'll talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. So one of Julia Child's mentees is Sarah Moulton, who herself is a big name these days. She's the former Gourmet Magazine executive chef, and she met Julia back in 1979 working on the set of Julia Child and More Company. I really like your Julia Child impression, I Caroline. I don't think <laughs> it's very accurate, but I'm enjoying it in my head. Same with the whole image of the shark and her stirring up the repellent. I love all of it. <laughs> I'm having a great time in my brain. Uh, but it was during Moulton's culinary rise in the mid to late 80s, kind of assisted by Julia, really, that chefs culturally transitioned into more celebrity status, thanks in part to Julia Child's astronomical success and influence, which helped lead to 20 years of PBS cooking shows. And you have these cooks and chefs starting to become household names. So, for instance, Holiday Entertaining with Martha Stewart launches on PBS in 1986, just to give us a little bit of a timeline. And uh, in a New York Times profile of Rachel Ray, who we'll actually talk about a little bit more in just a second. Very divisive figure. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It notes that there was an American food revolution happening in the 1980s with, quote, a proliferation of celebrity chefs, designer kitchens, and expensive artisanal ingredients, which moved into the middle class by the 1990s. So we're starting to see this entire shift in culinary going pop culture so speaking of that, I mean, Sarah Moulton is one of the, the, the early chefs who benefits from this uh, because Julia Child had Moulton assist her during Good Morning America appearances, which eventually led her to becoming one of Food Network's first stars. And Food Network mm-hmm. launched in 1993. And I mean, I feel like Food Network is so responsible for a bulk of our celebrity chef culture today. Yeah, but I love that Julia got her start on PBS because her whole thing was, I want to stick with the educators. Of course, all of these networks were offering her Boku bucks to cook for them and, uh, you know, attract all of these advertisers. Obviously, she already had the eyeballs to go with it. Um, but no, she was like, no, I'm, I'm big into teaching and supporting men and women who want to learn to cook. 
So, And one of those men and women who wanted to learn to cook was a name that a number of Sminty listeners suggested that we talk about when we announced that we were going to do an episode on cooking and celebrity chefs, Kat Cora. Um, she cites Julia Child as a direct influence. Um, she recently came out with a memoir, and in an interview about that in Fortune magazine, she talks about how in 1992 she drove from her home in Jackson, Mississippi, to Natchez to get advice from Julia Child at a book reading. And she said that Julia Child told her to go to the Culinary Institute of America. Remember, Julia Child had been essentially lobbying them to get more women in their doors. And she said, quote, it was a man's world and I had to be strong, stubborn and persistent. Good advice for any industry, any for any <laughs> job. But it's a man's world. <laughs> <laughs> I think being strong, stubborn and persistent is always good advice. Um, but yeah, so Kat Cora has a, a really incredible story too. She, I mean, she graduated from the Culinary Institute. She ends up going to Europe where she says it was unheard of for women, especially for women in the U.S. to hop on a plane and go to work in a three-star Michelin restaurant. Yeah, and it's interesting, though, because along her trajectory, she actually ended up turning down a couple of different jobs because, for instance, one chef who wanted to hire her wanted her to be his saute chef. And she's like, ah, I had to have that moment of weighing my options. Like, do I want to take not only a couple steps back on where I plan to be at this point in my life, but do I also want to take such a step back financially? And so she ended up telling the guy, like, I can't make $7 an hour and still live the life that I need to live, like, to actually <laughs> live somewhere. I can't make $7 an hour. She ended up making the right choice for her. She passed on that particular job and worked, as she says, in the trenches at a lot of fancy upscale restaurants. And usually in the trenches is code for working with a lot of dudes. Yeah. Um, and she said that was one of the reasons why the Food Network picked her you know, to kind of groom her as one of its stars. And in 2005, she was named the first female Iron Chef, as a, a, a number of stuff I've never told you listeners also noted to us. But speaking of Food Network, Iron Chef, and this whole TV-ification, to make up a word, of cooking that starts to really explode in the late 90s and early 2000s, because remember, we have that higher class, quote-unquote, food revolution in the 80s that then sort of trickles down to more of like the, well, yous and me's in the 90s and 2000s. We see some patterns starting to emerge in how famous female cooks slash chefs post Julia Child are presented. There's something that kind kind of shifts. And it's not that Julia Child cooked in Chef White's and in, in industrial settings and wasn't very homey in her approach. But it was still a lot more about the food. Mm-hmm. It was about her, obviously, her winning personality and charm, but still about the food. Yeah. And then we start to get cooking shows that are way more about that big personality. And this is also where we start to see, as that Yale professor Friedman notes, the thing that I mentioned earlier of suddenly we're getting celebrity chefs' opinions on things going on in the world beyond what's happening in their kitchen. Uh, Jamie Oliver, who's the, the Brit who had that big school lunch push to make school lunches healthier, suddenly we're also really concerned with what Paula Dean may or may not be saying that's horrific about people who work at her restaurants. You have Emeril Lagasse spinning off from doing a cooking show and doing an eco show, mm-hmm. looking at food 
food and sustainability. Mario Batali's getting in the car with Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, it's huge a, political statement. It's wild. Those orange Crocs are just screaming all sorts of things at us. <laughs> And scholar Lucy Scholes describes in a a paper on gender and celebrity TV chefs, she describes these chefs as figures who assimilate within his, her towering persona, the authority, charisma and responsibility of the journalist, the activist and the parent Mm. all rolled into one. We're, We're juggling a lot of rolling pins and whisks metaphorically at this point. That that is a lot to put on to to one aproned person, or no apron at all. Oh. A- aprons are frumpy now, Caroline. Oh no, but I love a good apron. Uh, yeah, this is we start to see a lot about how certain uh, lady TV chefs look. And what they're wearing, uh, what their figures look like, how busty or not busty they are. There's a lot of discussion about Nigella Lawson and Giada De, La- De Laurentiis. A lot of people just focusing on the looks. So you're saying that uh, the big shift in the early 2000s with TV cooks, cooking presenters, chefs, is sex appeal? Yeah, there's definitely less of the Julia Child quirkiness. Well, Rachel Ray's a little bit quirky, but way more focus on like, here's a beautiful woman cooking you a sandwich. Well, there's also two, they're attractive, but they can't be overtly sexy so as to turn off a female audience either. Mm -hmm. So they have that kind of BFF approach as well. They're just like your very attractive (laughs) friend, like Nigella Lawson, whose Nigella Bites was a huge hit. And also very much focused on her attractiveness. And, and notably, she she was a journalist before she turned to cooking. And she once described her 2000 cookbook, How to Be a Domestic Goddess, Baking and the Art of Comfort Cooking, as, quote, a very important feminist tract in its own right, because she said it celebrates the type of kitchen activity that's typically derided for its feminine associations, i.e., baking. Hmm. So it's it's going back to what we've talked about with femphobia, new domesticity, reclaiming womanly things as a feminist act. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, personally, I think it might have also been a little bit to just sell cookbooks and not and, and, and alleviate any tension over buying something titled How to Be a Domestic Goddess. Yeah. Which could be uh, seen as a little regressive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, then we get Rachel Ray's 30-minute meals. It, she debuts on a news station out of Albany, New York, and Food Network just snaps her up. But the thing is, like, she's no dummy. She's no just, like, talking, cooking head. Uh, she developed the idea on her own and shopped it around, amassing a huge cookbook's worth of recipes along the way. I mean, this woman did put out a cookbook that was, like, 365 days of cooking. So, Well, I mean, and that was when she was knee-deep in empire building. Even before that, she had started self-publishing, sort of. Like, she had, like, a, a very, very, very small press that she was working with to um, publish her recipes. And she straight up acknowledges, like, yeah, no, I'm not a chef. I'm just a really hard worker. And 30 Minute Meals debuted in 2001. Four years later, she has 4.5 Five million books in print, a six million dollar book contract, and four shows in regular rotation. Oh, and a magazine. I mean, Rachel Ray's rise to fame is 
incredible. But also the hate that that breeded was also incredible. Yeah, I never, I can't say that I ever had much of an opinion on Rachel Ray. I didn't watch her because I did think she was a little bit, like, overly spunky. uh, And it kind of drove me crazy. And as someone who didn't really watch cooking shows anyway, I was like, next. But I do have to admire her for all that lies behind that spunkiness, which is really just pure strength and determination. Yeah, and in that New York Times profile (laughs) addressing all of the haters because there were, and still are, I'm sure, so many, she said, I never said I was the greatest thing ever. I just think people should be able to cook even if they don't have a bunch of time or money. And I think that did mark a big shift in our pop culture approach to cooking where everything did become timed, even if it is in more of an elevated but still time competitive setting like a top chef. Which is which is interesting because so here's Rachel Ray who has the same idea as Julia Child of like cooking should be accessible and women should be able to do it and you should be able to enjoy it and have fun with it. But she's approaching it from the opposite way of like take less time, whereas Julia was like, let's invest more time and really enjoy what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like even thinking about their presentation where they are both all, their sets are in homey places, unless it's one of Rachel's travel shows. But their main sets are very domestic. They both have the quirky appeal, mm-hmm. you know, so they seem very down to earth. But they are coming at it from exact opposite vantage points. Mm-hmm. But Rachel Ray, too, was one of the women who was featured in what is possibly the most ridiculous article I've ever read. Uh, which was in the New York Times in 2007, which was all about fashion. That's not surprising. What's so, what's so weird about that? And it's because it literally was an entire style piece about how lady chefs on TV, lady celebrity chefs wear V-neck shirts. Period. Yeah. So they declared <laughs> chef whites and aprons are out. And V-necks that show just a little bit of cleave, that's short for cleavage, are the new, quote-unquote, uniform of female cooking show stars. And it attributes this safer-work sexy V-neck trend to Nigella. I would just like to say that I have been rocking a V-neck shirt for a very long time. It had nothing to do with Nigella Lawson. Well, Caroline, that's great for you. You can have your own cooking show now, (laughs) that means. (laughs) Sweet! Um, and it cites people like Giada, Sandra Lee, and also Rachel Ray, who are all wearing... I mean, it, when they did the side-by-side photo, it was convincing because all of them were wearing tasteful V-necks, three-quarter length sleeves. You could tell that the fabric had a little bit of a uh, little bit of spandex in it for shape. And it quotes Vogue Features director Sally Singer, who says, To wear an apron now looks old-fashioned, although for a man it can look endearing. And this, to me, did highlight the major contrast to industrial kitchen environments where dude chefs in their aprons, in their chef whites, are still seen, yes, as sexy rock stars. They are Sally Singer approved. But women chefs in frumpy aprons or genderless chef whites are seen as sexless and sweaty because it's hot. 
Yeah. And, and a woman being in an apron, that just harkens back to like your grandmother at the stove. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing like, there's certainly nothing sexy about that. Sorry. I don't know your grandmother. I remember at the height of Rachel Ray fame, there were some guys that I knew who did like her. I mean, she did the, the Maxim spread and there were some guys who secretly, I don't know that they watched the show, but they definitely found her whole like cute girl cooking thing very attractive. Well, yeah, I mean, she's the girl next door. She's probably going to have a beer with you while she's cooking you whatever, like 30 minute chili. Yeah. And that was the thing too. She got slammed on. People were like, it doesn't really take 30 minutes. And she's like, I know, I know. If you're not like, if you haven't prepped everything and if you're not Rachel Ray, of course it's not going to take just 30 minutes. Relax. But it is interesting to think about that, that shift in how we portray these women. I mean, they really, they aren't chefs. I mean, a lot of times they are cooks. Yes, you'll see Chef White's on Top Chef. You'll see it on the Master Chef finales, but their whole thing is like these are home cooks. They're not really chefs. Um, and you'll see it on Iron Chef, but you'll also see it more often on people like, uh, Bobby Flay and Emerald, mm-hmm. mostly Bam. dudes. And, and Food Networks and Burrell still wears her Chef White's, but I've also seen her doing the V-neck thing. If you start looking for the V-neck, Caroline, it's everywhere. But once you get inside all of us, it's true. (laughs) Until you hit over 50 and then you get a crisp button down, a la Ina Garten and Martha Stewart. Yeah, Ina Garten. Oh, Ina, which I was uh, sad that we were not going to get to talk much about Ina Garten at all. Really, only this mention, but to Ina Garten fans... I'm thinking of her. I like her. And my boyfriend has a weird opinion on her. And and listeners, I don't watch Ina enough to know exactly what he's talking about. So, Kristen, I don't know. Maybe you do. But my boyfriend is partially convinced that Ina's like trapped in the kitchen and that she's got some weird relationship with her husband. And he's like, that man, he just like expects her to do all the cooking. He just leaves her alone in there. I'm pretty sure she's chained up. And, you know, maybe he's gay. I don't know what's going on between them. But like, I feel like we need to set Ina free. I think Barefoot Contessa is living her best life. I do, too. I was she's like, just entertaining all the time. I was like, boyfriend, how can you think this? Ina looks like she's having so much fun, and she's so pleased to bring out the tray at the end of the cooking to feed the people. Super tangent. One of my favorite things on Twitter is Roxanne Gay live tweeting Barefoot <laughs> Contessa. <laughs> Listeners, if you have not uh, A, followed Roxanne Gay, do that, and then... Please tune in for her just tweeting about Ina. It's amazing. Well, and Ina Garten's another person who it's not about her sex appeal. It's not about whether she's a girl next door or not. It's a woman who's a really great chef making really relatable meals. Oh, but that reminds me, though. You say she's a really great chef. When I mentioned on Stuff I Never Told You social media that we were thinking about doing this episode and asking, should we do something on Julia Child or maybe Ina Garten? Someone sneered, Ina Garten's just a caterer, which, yeah, she did start a massively successful catering business. And that is how she got her start. But come on now. Well, okay. I mean, I don't know. Did she go to culinary school and and attain the status of chef? I mean, I don't know these things, but it seems like a little harsh to dismiss Ina Garten as a caterer when, like, obviously she's an amazing businesswoman and an amazing 
cooker of foods. Well, and it just gets to the whole point of these past, this episode and the last episode that we did on chefs in professional kitchens where there is that snobbery where it's like if, if you aren't a chef, if you're just a cook or a caterer, then you are not worthy of as much respect, even if you are incredibly successful. Which stinks because, I mean, traditionally, as we talked about in our last episode, especially when you go back to like the 17th and 18th centuries, like that's how women got their starts, where it was like home-based catering and confectionaries. Well, one thing, too, I did want to mention in this episode is how there there might be a little bit better representation of women in cooking on television mm-hmm. as opposed to in professional kitchens where it's, what, 35% of women are chefs in restaurants. So regardless of whether they are cooking, catering, or outright chefing, there is a little bit more gender parity on screen in terms of who's doing the cooking, who is guiding us through this meal preparation compared to the paltry 20% of women who are head cooks and chefs in restaurants. Uh, there isn't that much diversity, though. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that really was not highlighted in most of the things we read. But as I was reading and observing and looking at photos like that New York Times V-neck side-by-side comparison, I was like, oh, oh, all these women are white. Huh. And you have a little bit of diversity here and there, but I don't, I would, I would be very surprised if it were at anywhere on par with like our population statistics. Like oh, it were, yeah. it's not representative. No. And, and if anyone ever tries to insert some diversity into any of these networks, it's always with sort of a, an eye toward almost stereotyping. Uh, Tanya Holland was talking to the Chicago Tribune and she says, even on Food Network, they were dumbing us down. I was in the soul kitchen, so they wanted me to act sassy. I'm from suburbia. I'm educated. I have this plethora of experience. That was not the way I was going to act. And I will give a shout out to Top Chef. And MasterChef, because I do think those cooking competition shows, probably due to production, have more diversity within their ranks. But when it comes to those more Food Network stars, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty, pretty white. Um, I do want to give a quick shout out, though, to Carla Hall, who was on Top Chef. And is now on. Isn't she the one who said hootie hoo to her husband? Yeah, she's the hootie hoo lady. I love her. And she has a cookie business and she is delightful. She is. And she has parlayed her Top Chef career into um, TV hosting as well, which is great. But still, I mean, it's like a handful of examples. Yeah. So overall, Caroline, considering all the things we've talked about, we've talked so much about cooking this week. Mm Mm-hmm. If we look on screen versus taking a peek inside brick and mortar kitchens, what do we think about the gender portrayal? Well, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting when you have examples like Nigella Lawson, Rachel Ray, Sandra Lee, and then you look at people like Anthony Bourdain, Andrew Zimmer, and people like guys tend to be these rugged, uh, kind of snarky adventurer types, um, bad boys of the kitchen, like, oh, I'm going to smoke and get wasted and then talk about food. Whereas the women tend to be very, like, 
welcoming and nurturing and all of the stereotypical stuff that we talked about in our first episode. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I agree. I, I don't know that it's um, challenging gender roles all that much. Not that it necessarily needs to. No, but I think it it is representative of how we look at people who cook. Yeah, where it's still guy is chef and woman is cook. And yeah, she's I, nourishing and she's homemaking still. Yeah, like a guy uh, who cooks and is packing a knife, like he's he's dangerous. He, you know, he can do something amazing, which is be a man with a penis and cook a meal uh, where, with his penis. With his penis. Uh, whereas women are like, well, that's just what you're supposed to do. You're not like cool because of it. And maybe that's part of the appeal. I mean, there is something soothing about watching some of these shows. There's something soothing about joining Ina in her garden or in her kitchen and just watching her prepare food and talk calmly to the camera. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it, maybe it's more of like a Pinterest effect where it's like, this is just, there's a little bit of the aspirational self in there. Or maybe TV executives are simply putting forth what they think people want. Very, you know, true. like I would love to see a, a, a lady Anthony Bourdain. You know, you've got you. Well, you had Samantha Brown who also did travel stuff, but she was so saccharine. I would, yeah, I'd love to see a, a lady Anthony Bourdain. And until then, I, I guess I'll just watch Anthony Bourdain. And TV developers, if you're listening, we know a couple ladies. Yeah, who don't smoke, but we will drink on camera <laughs> in exotic locations and eat food. We can be real snarky. You haven't heard anything. <laughs> well, now we want to hear from listeners. Really curious to know. Your favorite celebrity chefs? Do you love Julia Child as much as we do? And what do you think about the portrayal of women cooking on TV? Is it just same old, same old? Or do you think that it is challenging our notions of women being in the kitchen and what that means? Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I have a letter here from Katie about our juicing episode. Uh, She has a couple of items to put things in perspective. She says, you didn't make a distinction between juice and smoothies, but spoke of them as interchangeable most of the time. Smoothies blend the whole fruit and veg, so they include all that lovely fiber, which is great for your intestines, makes you feel fuller for longer, plus it slows down the sugar absorption, so it keeps your blood sugar more stable. Juicing removes all the fiber, so you get a really high blood sugar spike, which is no different from eating chocolate, and it makes your liver work really hard to store all that excess blood sugar. So stick all that great fruit and vegetables in your Nutribullet, or a much cheaper alternative blender, add a scoop of protein power, some nuts or seeds, and a splash of nut or oat or rice milk to enjoy a filling, healthy, low-GI smoothie. P.S. And this is in reference to me being like, I think a juice could be a good addition to my granola bar breakfast. Katie says, granola bars can be 40% sugar, so they aren't a healthy breakfast. Also, you mentioned cost-making juicing, an upper-class thing. Classes are a bit different here. She's over in England. You talked about $7 juices from the shops or $200 juices in the time taken to juice, but not the cost of all the fruit and vegetables, of which half the goodness, all that fiber, ends up in the bin. Maybe that's the cheap bit in the U.S., but soon gets really expensive here. And yeah, buying all of those fresh fruits and veggies, and especially if you accidentally let any of them go to spoil, that can add up. So anyway, thank you, Katie. 
Well, I've got a letter here from Amy, and she was writing about our women weightlifting episode. She says, I have a condition where my kneecaps are unstable and occasionally partially dislocate. Ouch. I was a lanky, awkward teenager and never did any exercise. So when I started experiencing knee problems in my first year of university, I reacted by just restricting what I did out of fear of provoking a dislocation until even standing for five minutes or walking for 15 was a challenge. Eventually, I saw a great physiotherapist who suggested I get a gym membership rather than boring, repetitive physiotherapy exercises. In addition to low-impact cardio, she told me the most important thing for me to do was build up my leg muscles. I've now been exercising regularly, including resistance training for around three years, and Halloween will mark three years without a dislocation. More than anything else, resistance training has made a huge positive change in my life, and I was shocked to hear that such a small proportion of women did it. Not only do my kneecaps stay put, but it's also helped hugely with managing my anxiety and improving sleep. I really think that if I hadn't been socialized away from exercise, gyms, and weights and intimidated by them when I was younger, I would have sought help for my knees much earlier. And if I'd had a regular exercise regime to begin with and stronger muscles, my knees might never have gotten so bad. Thanks for talking about resistance training, and I hope that more women start to do it. I still feel like I'm a super unlikely candidate, but if I can do it and love it, anybody can. Yeah. I just started doing my first strength training classes. How did it go? It's going really well. It's like a lot of circuits, you know, not a bunch of huge weights. Everybody was really excited to hear that you and I had done the strength training podcast. Did you tell them that you don't poke up? Yes, we told them that you don't poke up. It's true. And all of our listeners have written in to confirm that, too. It is true. Yeah. So if you have letters to send us, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can read more in this instance about women cooking on television, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.